If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week with TechCrunch's Danny Crichton. Good afternoon. And Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hey, Kate. How's it going, everyone? Excellent. Yeah. We are recording a day early this week because tomorrow is a big day for TechCrunch. We're hosting a robotics event in Berkeley. So we have the Equity crew here on a Wednesday to talk about all the news of the week so far. One quick programming note before we dive into all the news we want to share. By the time you hear this, Pinterest and Zoom should have priced their IPOs and begun trading on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. So we'll be back on Friday to look at how those IPOs performed. Until then, let's go over all the news of the week. Alex, tell us a little bit about all these bullish signals you're excited about. Yeah, so instead of having an actual topic to contribute to the equity agenda doc this week, I kind of just threw a bunch of my random notes into a section called bullish signals because I try to keep track of like what the overall feel of the market is, you know, kind of week by week, month by month, maybe even quarter by quarter. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that I'm keeping an eye on to kind of illustrate where I see things. Because I don't know if everyone else kind of does this, but it's cool to know where um, everyone's kind of going in the same direction. So the NASDAQ is flirting with being back over 8,000, which is a pretty big kind of threshold or milestone. Um, there have been a couple of dozen, maybe almost three dozen kind of 100 million or larger rounds so far in Q2. And it's like April 17th today. Um, and it seems that the kind of the, the late 2018 hangover and fear that came into the market when the NASDAQ took kind of a shock and that trickled down to the private markets has kind of gone away. And even crypto has kind of picked up a little <laughs> bit. We haven't God. said crypto in a while. We have um, not. But that, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And I don't want to take too long on this, but I'm kind of curious if you guys agree or disagree with the, my temperature check, if you will, on the private market and also kind of like tech stocks in general. I know, Danny, you watch China pretty carefully. Yeah, no, you know, China was really suffering the last year, right? The GDP growth uh, shrunk quite a bit. Um, but then we had a lot of great news even in the last couple of days. So the GDP grew in the first quarter more than expected. Uh, a lot of the other economic indicators went up. VC is up. Um, China is still investing in the US despite some of the CFIUS regulatory changes. So, you know, across the board, I think people are just getting excited. I mean, I, I look at it as I think there was a lot of fear just two or three months ago. And then Lyft, Uber, Zoom, you start mm-hmm. to see all these big numbers, these pops, all this money being made. And people can't help but, you know, go into that and say, how do I make money there too? Yeah, yeah. And this goes back to what Kate was telling us about the YC demo day a couple of weeks ago, I think. Like there are like two stages and so many companies and it's so competitive now, even just to get money into those new companies. So it seems like the private market, even at the early stage, is pretty hot too. So overall, uh, we're back, I guess, to where we were. And uh forget dips, y'all. Who needs to slow down? Yeah, there's so much capital that VCs have to compete desperately to get it in these early stage companies, which is a very funny thing to observe. And that is also why we're seeing so many enormous rounds at the later stage. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. This week alone, there was quite a notable round uh, for PAX, which is the company that originally was responsible for Juul, the e-cigarette company. And I don't know a ton about this. So Alex, you want to give us the spiel? Yeah, well, I saw I saw that PAX is possibly raising a, a $400 million round, and I got really excited because I live in San Francisco. I have to be a PAX customer by law. Um, but what I, what I think people don't... Okay, well, you know, if you're, if you're not SF, you don't get that. But if you are, you get it. So there you go. 
So originally there was a company called Plume, which is spelled P-L-O-O-M. And that was a, a shot at an e-cig company. And that was sold, I think it was to Japan Tobacco International back in 2015. And then the guys bought it back, is my understanding, named it Pax Labs, and then spun Juul out of it. So there's a kind of a lot of corporate stuff here. Juul is the very popular uh, e-cigarette kind of nicotine delivery vaporizer company that Altria spent, gosh, what was it, like $12.8 billion to buy crazy. about a third of? Yeah, it's totally nuts. But Pax is the original company-ish, and they focus on cannabis products. And so if you think about like Juul being like vaporizers for nicotine, which is great, uh, Pax does that for uh, the cannabis market. And so to see them raise a bunch of money after Juul's success, uh, it's just really impressive, I think. I I'm shocked that the company has managed to do kind of a, a two smash hits in a row. Um, but we don't know quite yet, you know, who's in the round, what the valuation will be. But the company had raised about $122 million before this. So it's going to be an enormous flood of capital for PAX. And uh, this is either a sign of the times or it's uh, probably a pretty cheap deal because Juul has certainly paid off. You know, Kate, like it's been an enormous success for the company so far. Yeah, I can see why investors would want to pour in that kind of money into PAX Labs, given that it's responsible for Juul, which has been sort of this cultural phenomenon in San Francisco and beyond, especially with teenagers. Last week, I was talking to a couple of dozen VCs, and I think another dynamic here is that a lot of limited partners, the people who actually give the capital to venture capitalists to invest, have also loosened a lot of their morality clauses. So oh, well. particularly on stuff like marijuana, <laughs> on e-cigarettes, on a whole host of other gambling um, you know, VCs are seeing where some of this money's been made. Jules, one of many kind of top line examples, yep. and they're going to their LPs and saying, "Look, I want more flexibility to invest in some of these, maybe uh, I won't call them immoral, but certainly more gray area versus your enterprise SaaS play certainly. in the HR space." So, I think we're also seeing more capital just being available to invest in these sorts of companies. Yeah, Alex, I think cannabis tech is something we maybe don't talk about enough on the podcast, and I think there's a lot going on there that's sort of not getting the proper press treatment. Um, I think a lot of investors are really excited about investing in that space. And um, I'd be curious to sort of take a deeper dive in into it at some point. Yeah, I, I think cannabis tech as a general area is being held back by banking restrictions because a lot of, I think, players in the space can't use normal banks because of federal laws about cannabis and how it's treated by the government. I'm just hoping that that kind of clears a little bit because I think that these companies deserve a shot. And, you know, if we're going to allow Bud Light to sponsor every single halftime show in, in the world, uh, cannabis, which is a, a lower impact product, is probably a good idea. But on the morality thing, don't forget that Juul, the staff, was kind of like anti-tobacco. They were opposed to people smoking cigarettes and getting all sorts of cancers. And Juuls, while not safe, are definitely safer. Um, I think Altria spent like $2 billion giving out bonuses to the Juul staff so they wouldn't quit. Something like yeah, a million, a million three apiece. So, okay. I mean, that's one way to buy loyalty, you know. It's... I, I like that use of money. But anyways, I promise I wouldn't go on for too long. Um, a company we've talked about before has $100 million coming its way, but not in the normal way. So, Kate, what's going on with uh, the fast unicorn Brex? Yeah, so Brex, which is the uh, company that provides a credit card tailored specifically to startups and their various needs, has now raised $100 million in debt. So it's not a venture capital round. It's not an equity round. It doesn't change their valuation, they told us in a conversation this week. But it's helping them to provide, you know, they have to support, obviously, the credit they're providing to the companies. And they also want to expand into Fortune 500 companies. So what's set Brex apart this, this whole time is the fact that they do focus on small businesses, basically tech startups in the Silicon Valley area. But now they want to diversify. They want to scale. They have raised $215 million. So they're in the process of developing a new card that will be 
for these much larger businesses, enterprises that can help Brex kind of take its business to the next level. That's really interesting because this this company has been kind of a controversial firm. I feel like people, when it came out, were making fun of its like billboard usage and you know how fast its valuation grew. But this is a pretty big endorsement of its business model. Like you can't raise debt on a dream. You have to presumably have a pretty reasonable cash flow situation to be able to service this right. kind of facility. Right. And that's kind of what they said they expect because they were able to raise this Barclays set round that they will see a really big premium the next time they do raise an equity round, which I mean, will will probably be later this year. They said they're not fundraising right now, but actually like talk to some other people I talked to that are pretty familiar with their fundraising activities. So they actually are raising right now. So I think they probably are. Why wouldn't you? Right. I mean, of course. And Brex has seen such astronomical growth. I mean, it's got to be one of the fastest growing YC grads. It only graduated from Y Combinator, I think, last year. You know, it's a unicorn already. It has been for six months. And they've just collected a lot of customers and sort of tapped into a space that tapped into a really unmet need, I think. I think we're seeing this across the credit card space. I mean, you know, there were a couple of issuers and there was basically one model for how you got credit, which was the FICO score. And what we're seeing here is not just on the consumer side, there's a bunch of startups, but also on the corporate side, like Brex, Mm -hmm. there are other startups. There's like uh, Nav, which is doing a a business credit score, um, has also raised an enormous amount of money. But um, the one consistent across all of these is sort of breaking those old quantitative models and saying, how to use machine learning, artificial intelligence, data science to say, who could we underwrite that we didn't underwrite to before? Mm-hmm. And the a perfect example of this is a year-old startup that's just getting started that has very early revenues. Uh, and once you get into that market, you're like, wow, there's billions and billions we could potentially lend here, which is hopefully pretty safe. Right. And we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think some people have highlighted the fact that they are dealing with a pretty risky space because startups are known to fold, go bankrupt at kind of any point. So it's a little bit of an unpredictable, hazy field that Brex is in. And I kind of just have to wait and see what happens with them. Yeah. Can I, can I throw one little bit in on that? So I was very much in the, in the pessimist camp about Brex because I thought you're loaning money unsecured to startups, which famously die. Like, isn't that taking on a simply insane amount of risk? Uh, anyways, I, I, I had lunch with the CEO, uh, Enrique, And I asked him that, I think a bit more politely than that, maybe. Uh, And he walked me through how they handle kind of checking in on business health that they loan to and how they can uh, cut off credit if they don't feel like that the the borrower is going to be, Danny, what's the word? I forget. Uh, Credit worthy? No, it's the other one. Able to pay it back. Solvent. There you go. Oh, good job. You got it there on your own. Yeah, that's, a good word. that's a good word. Two two points to me, I guess, or maybe minus five, one of the two. Um, <laughs> solvent. And so they have more of an insight into these companies than we would think. And so I think some of the pessimism is misplaced, but still it's unsecured debt. There is some risk uh, to be sure, but they're going after other yeah. verticals like e-commerce and I don't know. I'm less yeah, pessimistic than I was. So, well, this this has been the model at say Silicon Valley Bank, right? Which is Silicon Valley Bank does debt now; it's secured debt, but they also are your bank, right? So they see your your current accounts, they see how many things, um, your your sort of cash flow situation, and so they have all that internal intelligence that most other you know kind of issuers do not. So, so long as they're collecting that and keeping close guard, I, I think it's a, a smart strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, one last note before we move on from from Brex, because we have a family note, if you will. Uh, for long for long term listeners of Equity, you will recall that Matthew Lindley was one of the original kind of co hosts of the show, along with Katie Roof and myself. And uh, Lindley, it has been publicly announced, recently joined Brex, and so that was uh, kind of a small world moment for us because we were getting the show together. So shout out to him, and uh, we miss him. So all the best to Lindley. Uh, moving on. Kate, I know there's some awesome health tech stuff going on. There's been a couple of fun rounds. What is cracking this week? 
Yeah, health tech is one of my favorite areas to cover, and I feel like there's been advancements every week for the past few months. Um, this week, Roe, which you probably know better as Ro- Roman, um, which is a uh, provider of direct-to-consumer erectile dysfunction medications for men, which they um, mail very discreetly directly to your doorstep in very um, startup-friendly, millennial-friendly packaging. <laughs> um, they've raised $85 million at a $500 million valuation. So what I thought was really interesting about this actually was the fact that this is their Series B and it hasn't been announced yet. So it's it's very possible that it'll expand before they announce it. But it's actually smaller than their Series A, which was $88 million. And I, and I bet you guys talked about this on the podcast at the time or um, maybe even I did. I don't remember when that was, but that was a crazy outsized round. Like how often do you see a Series A that size? Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was ridiculous. But now they've raised a similar amount of money to much higher valuation. But kind of my question is, if they're doing these drugs that are now uh, no longer under like patent protection, so they can be kind of sold really cheaply by a lot of companies in a direct-to-consumer model, what kind of a moat can Roe or Roman or Hims or these companies have? Because to me, it sounds like they're just selling um, kind of generic drugs via the mail. Is there is there more here that I'm missing, or is that kind of the whole model? Yeah, I mean, I I have the same questions, and what you mentioned about them selling them very cheaply, I, I, they actually don't. I mean, they they sell them; if they're more expensive to get them through these direct consumer brands. It seems to me in the research that I've done, which I think makes me sort of doubt the efficacy of these brands and also kind of the mission and what the point is. Do I'm doing it aside from getting giving people easier access in that it's delivered to their doorsteps. I also think that um, brand is such a great moat in this case. I mean, it's, it's no different than, say, Warby or the shaving startups in the D2C, D2C space. I, I, I'll give you an example, something I heard early on from, from Roman back when it was Roman. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of their advertising strategies was actually to buy billboard space in gym urinals. And the idea was they would put urinal because the idea was, when are you thinking about um, your issue? And you're at the gym and you finished up and you you have to pee and you see a Roman ad. And so there'd be like an actual URL right there. And that ended up being one of their supposedly like hottest channels. And so mm. I, I think there's actually, you know, as you get out of sort of the the, the CPG, the consumer product good space into healthcare, I, I think we're going to see a lot of these unique channels that target different ages, different genders. And that can be a mode in and of itself if you can advertise. Yeah, you're right. And they've definitely done a really great job with branding. And so they... They began with Roman and they actually changed the name to Roe because they've since launched two more brands that are completely different. Um, one of them is called Zero, which is uh, the brand, uh, the, which is the reason they raised $88 million was to build out this brand, which is an, basically a kit that helps you quit smoking. And their third brand, which very recently launched and is presumably what they'll spend this new money on, is called Rory, which is a woman's brand is targeting menopausal women. So, you know, they've got now three brands and this sort of umbrella company, Roe, which plans to take on various verticals within the healthcare industry. I, I like that. I like that they're doing more than just one thing. But like, you know, when you do change your name and you kind of build a, I guess Roe is the parent company of these three brands, you probably have a lot of work to do to build up Rory. Because I'm pretty sure that the people who are using Roe or Roman aren't Rory customers. And so there's going to be have to, some reinvestment into building them out. And that's going to be really expensive. But it's cool. I, I like the model. I think this is better than the way things used to be. I'm just concerned about, you know, generics versus valuation. But that's my general bearers complain about most things. So mm. The next round of the health tech space this week was for a company called KindBody. This is a fertility startup that operates vans, which they call mobile clinics, in New York City and San Francisco, where women can go on and take a test that helps them learn about their fertility. It doesn't tell them if they're fertile or not, but it gives them a better idea of how fertile they might not be. After they take that test, KindBody has a clinic where you can go and ultimately pay $6,000 to freeze your eggs. 
That's really cool. I, I like that they're bringing this to people where they might not be able to get it otherwise. My question is how how many places can you take a mobile clinic? Like, is it huge? Is it hard to get around? It's a fertility bus, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a van. And, and now with this new funding, they're actually, they're launching, like you just said, a fertility bus, literally just a huge bus where you can go on and get a full fertility assessment, which, yeah, it's great. It's, it's bringing these services directly to people, which is cool, but there's just so many issues still within um, that industry in that the cost of these services are just so expensive. It reminds me a little bit of um, of Minute Clinic, which sold for a couple hundred million dollars, what to either CVS or Walgreens. And, um, you know, in, th- in their case, the model was to actually open up, up sort of uh, you know, primary care physician clinics built around uh, malls. So the idea was like, you could just go to the mall and in the middle of the mall was like, sort of this healthcare clinic that would offer, you know, cold medicine and and flus and, you know, basic shots and vaccines and that sort of stuff. Uh, my question is, is, do people have to come back multiple times for fertility or is it sort of like a one-time test in your life? A one-time test in your life to determine how fertile you are? Yeah. I mean, the thing is about these tests, which is kind of why I question startups like this is is that they don't they're not conclusive like you can't take a test and have it say oh you're fertile or oh you're infertile so like yeah you could go back multiple times over years and you could have different results so it's it's kind of i think some people have been a little skeptical of kind body in particular because Mm -hmm. it has this really great branding again and it's attracting millennial women to get these tests um but you know say like me i'm 24 years old i get this test and then they're like oh you're not super fertile you should freeze your eggs well that's encouraging some women who maybe need, need to do that to pay a lot of money to do it so it's sort of like this question of like, you know, are they just capitalizing off, uh, you know, young women's attempts or desires to sort of plan out their future or are they just, are they really trying to make this a more accessible industry? Yeah. With accessibility comes different responsibilities. And I think you highlighted those well. But uh, at least when it comes to the price of this sort of thing, there's another company that is working in that space called Carrot Fertility and they just raise more money. Yeah, they raise $11 million. Um, and this is a YC backed start or a YC alum rather, that is just making it easier for employers to offer fertility benefits, which is extremely important. So that's a really great to see another round there. And as we talked about before, I wrote a story for Extra Crunch, which is our new subscription offering um, about the fertility uh, industry and the fact that VCs are really excited about it. So this is just more proof points that indeed VCs are really interested about backing companies in this space. Kate, is it common to see three rounds in the health tech space in the same in the same week? I don't have a good feel for how much venture capital there's in this space. Or even just fertility. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think, no, no I mean, I don't think so. No, it's not common. You know, 2019, I think it's, this is the year of like health and wellness tech, and we're really seeing that play out. And, you know, there's been just these three this week, but there was, there's been several, like just the past couple months, I think there's been one per week. So it's really a crazy time for women's health in particular, uh, which is really cool to see. But yeah, I think it's it's really illustrates a new trend within venture capital and startups. That's that's really exciting to hear. I'm, I'm glad that it's not just dude stuff. Um, but we are going to pivot away from smaller rounds to talk about some huge companies. And happily, because we have Danny with us today, he can tell us all about NXP and Qualcomm, what didn't go right there and what is now going right with NXP and Hawkeye Technologies. Danny, is that it? Hey everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Yeah, that's the one. So let, let, let's uh, you know f- uh, rewind the clock a little bit. So last year, two years ago, uh, we had this big, big kind of merger acquisition agreement between NXP, which is a Dutch-based hardware design company that really focuses around automotive technology, and, and Qualcomm, which is sort of the leader in mobile chipsets and a bunch of other kind of uh, semiconductor categories. And, and this had gotten clearance from the US, from the European Union, but had been blocked in China. And this was a, a $44 billion deal that really froze 
both companies for more than a year. And in, in the end, China really put the kibosh on it. It was shut down. Um, the CEO of, of Qualcomm really left because his strategy was sort of uh, kind of disintegrated and, and the companies moved on. And so this today we had a story um, that NXP is actually investing in a company called Hawkeye Technology, which is a Chinese company specializing in automotive radars. And so what it was interesting to me was um, seeing NXP, which really you know, saw its future kind of destroyed by the Chinese antitrust competition authorities kind of re-entering that market in the space that they've been investing in to try to get another foothold in sort of the China technology space. So when we think about these companies that are working in, in sensor tech, right, this is, I, I presume, mostly to do with automotive cars and therefore autonomous driving. Is that kind of what they're trying to buy access to is the Chinese autonomous car market? I think it's it's both that it, it it's China is really caught up right so China is an epicenter for autonomous tech technology for lidar for radar you know we saw a rumor today that Apple is getting into this space actually hmm. and so I, I think that this is sort of a way to dip their toe back into the space after you know two years of fighting with the government you know for NXP the the hope here is to own the next generation of automotive technology and they're one of the most kind of well positioned companies to do so so okay that I I was really curious about this because I was trying to prep for the show and, and we picked topics I had of time when we all kind of research them and try to have something to say that's useful. Hawkeye technology, there's not that much online that I could find. So I'm almost surprised that NXP knows about this company because I couldn't find, there's no, no Crunchbase profile, no funding history. Like It's almost like a, a dark horse, if you will. And we know that they raised like four and a half million back in 2015 when they were founded. But since then, I don't know much. So it's, it's a shocking kind of event to me. I'm, I'm excited by it because I don't know enough to really, I don't know, know enough. Yeah, I, th I think it's a sign. I mean, as we talked about during the your, your bullish signals, you know, the, the Chinese economy is doing a little bit better in the last quarter. And I, I think what we're seeing here is um, this sort of unfreezing of a lot of these processes, right? So NXP is sort of getting back into China. Qualcomm just signed its deal with Apple and is sort of clearing up years and years of kind of patent litigation with Apple writing a, a huge check to Qualcomm. And I think Qualcomm stock was up, what, 20, 25% yesterday in, in this week, mm -hmm. something like yeah, that. Huge right? surge. And so we're starting, and, and Intel got out of the 5G battle, right? So that was a battle they've been facing for a couple of years. So I think what we're seeing across all these spaces is sort of this unfreezing where, you know, 5G is coming, autonomous vehicles are coming, everyone's getting back to what they're supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. um, which is great for startups, because I think you know, with 5G and autonomous coming through, there's going to be so many opportunities coming up. And I think uh, in addition to health and wellness this year, I think we're going to finally see the damn break on on those categories as well. Well, we said that we were going to start talking more about global companies. So I'm glad we had a little bit of a conversation about China. Next, let's talk about Africa. Yeah. Uh, Jumia is a company that was born out of uh, Rocket Internet originally back in the day and has become I think as we discussed in the show a couple of weeks ago, when it went, when it was uh, filing to go public, it's kind of an e-commerce and logistics and delivery play inside of Africa, which uh, as a continent has, I think it was 1.2, 1.3 billion people. So it's a player in a space that has a lot of potential. And the fact that it was going public on the uh, American exchanges was fascinating. What's even more fascinating is what's happened since it went public. Um, it, it picked a $14.50 per share price for its IPO, and it closed up 76% its first day. And today it closed at just over $40 a share. So way more than a 2X. And uh, yeah, who who would have thought that this company was going to be the one that was going to set the IPO records for the year? Because keep in mind, when we walked through it, it had some pretty good growth, but it also had a really high level of unprofitability, even for unicorns uh, this year. And the market's all about it. So guys, do we think this is a, is this, is this a bet on, the African e-commerce space, or is this a bet on on Jumia? Like, I can't discern here what's 
hype versus what's a bet on the company itself becoming a super profitable enterprise. I don't, do we have any views? I think that it's probably investors excited about a, the Amazon model. I mean, yes, Africa is a huge, huge market that's very much untapped, especially for these American stock markets and American investors. So I think that it's just a really big opportunity there. Danny, what do you think? I think it's a stock that no one's ever heard of. It comes out and suddenly you're like logistics, Africa, growth, Amazon. There's all these kind of buzzwords. If you're an investor so on Wall true, Street, okay, so all true. of a sudden you're like, do I want to put like a huge amount of money into this? Do I want to pull out? What do I do? And so yeah. you're seeing these gyrations as people kind of like learn literally in downtown financial yeah. district, New York, like what's going on. Whereas like if you were going to compare it to like an Uber or Lyft, Companies have, everyone has known these companies are going public for years. They've done so much diligence. Some of the top banks have done millions of dollars of research to figure out exactly what these prices should be. And that doesn't mean there won't be gyrations, but you know, I think this was sort of a little un unexpected and I think it's going to get a lot of attention. I think something that we should look up and we did not is uh, how much is, is sort of retail day traders, right? This feels like the kind of stock that a bunch of people on the internet are sort of talking and kibitzing about and trying to beat the you know, professional investors on Wall Street. So I'd be curious to see if this is sort of the, mm -hmm. the long, short, you know, day trade stock du jour. And uh, I'm looking forward to tracking it in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I don't know the size of the float. It sold 13 and a half million shares. So about a $200 million raise, give or take, without the green shoe offering. So it's not there's that like there's several billion dollars out there to play with. So it could be exactly what you're saying that the uh, the Robin Hood crowd, if you will, is uh, is pushing it around. But we'll see. I mean, it was down 10% today, but it was still at $40 a share up from 14 and a half. So I'm just enthusiastic about it and have an eye on it. So if you want to track an IPO, pick Jumia. Why not? And who, and who says that the public markets are dead? You can get 3x in a week. I mean, that's way better than anything I ever did in ventures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that's equity. Uh, well, that's a great note to end on. So thanks for coming along, Danny. And uh, everyone uh, have fun tomorrow at the uh, Berkeley Robotics event. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.